Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. So here we are, friends. We are still neck deep in COVID-19. I hope that wherever you are around the world, that you are taking great care of yourself, that you are staying healthy and happy and well, and that you're able to take care of yourself the same way as you are undoubtedly taking care of other people. I am thinking of each and every one of you, even in our disembodied uh, podcast form, um, and to let you know that, of course, none of us are alone in this um, and that of course the way in which this particular pandemic is influencing everybody really varies from from person to person so yeah thinking of you and sending all my love your way so one of my most recent conversations was with a very, very dear friend of mine. Lisa Pearl is from Boston in the US and is a licensed clinical nutritionist and eating disorder specialist. So as you'll find out in the podcast, I've known Lisa for just a handful of years now, but by reputation for many more before that. Lisa is the founder of the Counseling and Nutrition Centre 360 LLC. She's also the co-founder of the first graduate certificate and internship program at Simmons University for the study of eating disorders, and that's in partnership with Marcy Evans. In addition, to, in addition to teaching at Simmons, Lisa maintains her clinical practice, provides group and individual supervision for other clinicians, and teaches a mindful movement practice. Now, I was really, really lucky when we were away on a retreat together, this time last year, actually, uh, late August, early September 2019. Oh my goodness, it feels like a lifetime ago in so many ways, and yet not very long ago at the same time. And Lisa offered to take us through what's called a NIA practice, N-I-A. And essentially it is mindful movement to um, a, a specific music with a, with a specific beat to it. And it was so lovely. It felt so caring and compassionate and held and lots of fun too. Uh, so if you're interested in Nia, I'm sure that uh, Elisa will tell you more about it because she absolutely loves it and she is a fantastic teacher, that's for sure, particularly us beginners where we really had no idea what we were doing. So in this episode, Lisa and I talk about Lisa's career trajectory and her important motives for staying in this work for over 30 years. Lisa discusses how body image, embodiment and eating disorder in combination with body image treatment has changed over time. We also talk about why social justice for body liberation is absolutely essential and now more than ever. We also talk and discuss about different ways that we can comprehend and understand embodiment, the challenges and barriers to experiencing our authentic self and obtaining authentic spaces, especially for people in minority groups. We discuss why we need diversity in dietetics and more importantly, how we can actually make it happen. Why it's important now more than ever to amplify voices and people of color today and consistently in the future, the steps that those of us with privilege need to be taking, uh, you know, when to speak up, when to step back and the wisdom to know the difference. And then at the end, we loop back around and talk about the direction that Lisa would like to see the future of dietetics head. I hope you really enjoy this episode. Lisa is one of those spectacular human beings that actually we all need a little dose of Lisa in our lives or a, or a 
more comprehensive dose, I personally believe. So a big thanks to Lisa Pearl for joining me for this particular episode and all other episodes of The Mindful Dietitian you can find on the website which is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and then you'll see the tab of podcasts. We are up to episode 66 which is pretty amazing. What you'll notice is that uh, I don't necessarily uh, publish podcasts every two weeks or every three weeks. I aim to do them consistently every two or three weeks, but it doesn't always happen. And um, what I aim to really embody and role model is this sense of imperfection, really, in so many ways. And those of you who know me personally will will know that I, yes, am definitely the uh, the person who can role model imperfection in so many ways. And I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way, but more a sense of owning my own humanity, as I'm sure we are all trying to do at, at this moment, again, as we are neck deep in this very uh, difficult and challenging time. So any other information about training, which is online, of course, uh, any uh, podcast episodes, as I just mentioned, um, also resources um, and other people's training and resources, supervision information, and much more on the Mindful Dietitian website. All right, so enough about all of that stuff. Let's head into the this wonderful podcast episode with Lisa Pearl. Welcome, Lisa, to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. What an absolute pleasure it is to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Fiona. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Lisa, you and I have known each other a number of years now, first crossing paths when you attended Marcy and my body image workshop, which is now coming up for two and a half years ago, maybe something like that. And much to our horror, I might add that you signed up. We could not believe it. But in saying that, I was like, Oh, I get to meet Lisa Pearl. Wow. <laughs> wow. But you know, I never know what to say when people say those things to me. I think it's um, a little frightening because I have no idea what's in your mind, Fiona. <laughs> Well, I think that um, people who are listening could really relate to if you know of somebody by um, esteemed reputation and then you see their name on your attendance list, it just, it does something to our anxiety levels and it does something to our, maybe our uh, tendency, our performative tendencies, perhaps. So I'm, I'm sure you could, you could relate to that yourself oh, and you've had yeah absolutely when I had to present in front of my colleagues my esteemed colleagues that was the most frightening time to give a presentation right and I have to say it, it feels mutual because I feel like folks like you and Marcy are using your voices for good in this world and it is an inspiration to me right so I look at you in the same light Oh, I really appreciate that, Lisa. You know, it's a we have such a we have such a wonderful community of people where the idea that we ever stop learning is not it. We don't even it's not even on our radar, and that yeah. um, there's always always things to learn. So, with with that in mind, you have had quite the career, and you are so well well respected and well known not only within your immediate uh, location and geography, but now increasingly worldwide. So um, I'm, I'm so curious about, you know, the trajectory of your work and, and what were some of the most formative points, um, you know, what were some of the most formative learnings that have, you know, have brought you to this particular point? Oh, my Lord, that's, that's such a big question. I would need days to consider this question, I think. Um, but given, you know, the times that we're in right now in the United States, I have to say that one of the reasons why I've stayed in this work for so long is that I believe that people have the right to feel safe in their bodies. And I think that cuts across all ages, genders, ethnicities, um, preferences for sexuality or gender. And I, um, I think that's probably the primary reason that I've stayed right in the work that I really want to see us continue to try 
and work towards some kind of universal commitment to making that happen. And with eating disorders, you know, you see the, the devastation that happens with so many people where they feel as though it's not safe to inhabit their bodies. So, yeah, I think that's why I'm in it. Mm-hmm. And, and why I, you know, again, I really appreciate that, you know, the younger generation like yourself is really using your voice to make, a, make change happen. Yeah, it ignites an enormous amount of hope, of hope in me and um, cultivates that feeling that we are making progress, right? We're not just going backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to understand, Lisa, you know, over time, what have been your observations of the ways in which the dietitians have worked alongside issues like embodiment and body image and you know I'm curious over time what you what you've noticed about how this is uh, developed or changed or matured or hmm. yeah well you know in some ways I feel like there's been this um, second wave of women and not just women of course but you know of many dietitians really taking back their power in the field and uh, you know I, I was in 1983 maybe 84 I was part of a scale bashing that happened in Harvard Square <laughs> in Cambridge um, I was all fired up I had just read Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminine Issue um, and then Fifi One and Fifi Two of her books. Um, there was a lot of movement around women's psychology. The folks at the Stone Center at Wellesley College, Jean Baker Miller and all of her colleagues were really starting to promote um, cultural relational theory and um, relational cultural theory. Uh, and so there was a lot of excitement that we were going to make a big difference in all of the um, weight stigma and the oppressive nature of beauty in our country. And it would impact young women, you know, as they were developing. Um, At the time, we didn't even realize how many boys were suffering as well, right? That came later. At this point, I was was one of the directors of the eating disorder program at Boston Children's Hospital, and we had 20 beds for, um, for adolescents, who had an eating disorder, yeah. So, yeah, it's always been there, right? The 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 body politic, the way in which we, um, women dietitians were working alongside others in the healthcare field, trying to understand these illnesses that clearly had a cultural influence, even though at that point in time we hadn't really done the research to show it. That timing is actually really interesting because we're, when we think about the early to mid 80s, it mm-hmm. can't escape our attention that there was a huge uptick in the dieting industry as well. And I imagine that was no mistake where, yeah. you know, this uprising of, of voices and volume and opposition that was met with, um, was, was met with resistance from, from, from diet and, and, um, body oppressive um, yeah. organizations. Yeah, you know, it felt like we were um, just the tiniest ripple in the in the water. You know, it, we were up against what we felt at that time with these just goliaths of the diet industry, and yeah, uh, but we we remained steadfast and. You know, it's, it's never easy to hold a minority opinion over a long period of time in healthcare, you know, and I had um, developed a lot of wonderful relationships with psychotherapists, particularly feminist um, psychotherapists, and a number of people in the NAFA community. So um, people who were really willing to put their life on the line, you know, to stick their necks out and to try to make a difference. 
So the organisation NAFA, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Fat Acceptance, mm -hmm. um, a little history of that, and, and Lisa, please do correct me if I get any of this wrong, because I have a very rudimentary understanding of the history. So Bill Fabry, is that correct? Uh -huh. Is one of the, yeah, one of the founding, I guess, directors of NAFA, I don't, I'm not sure how, how he would position that, um, started NAFA um, because of the um, stigmatisation and discrimination of his fat wife. And just a reminder to everybody listening, when we use the word fat, we're using it as a neutral descriptor of somebody's body um, rather than a, than, a, than a slur or a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think NAFA was really the first place that I was introduced to this, you know, embodied movement of people walking the walk of health at every size and making a commitment to social justice around the discrimination of people living in um, different body sizes. So um, I was inspired by them, right? And I, I also had the great fortune, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have to go back and say I live with a tremendous amount of privilege, right? I'm white, I am well-educated, I'm healthy, I'm able-bodied, I'm um, financially secure, I'm cisgendered, you know, I mean, so much privilege. Um, but I, I didn't, I grew up with a, a parent who was not able-bodied. And so I always had some sensitivity to that. And then I had the great fortune to um, work with Bill Bennett, who wrote um, The Diet is Dilemma with Joel Guerin. And Joel's mom, Helen Guerin, was my supervisor at Children's Hospital. She was the director of social work there and she was a pistol. She was amazing. And, um, and Bill Bennett was this phenomenal researcher who um, really taught me how health is not determined by body size. I mean, he really gave me the science behind that. So I don't know. I don't know how I got so fortunate. Uh, you know, the universe just kind of opened up for me. All of this happened in response to this... Um, this presentation I made when I was doing my master's at a hospital on a young man with anorexia. And, um, and the presentation that I gave was about how we really needed to be considering the body, that it wasn't just a psychological process, but that the body was included as well. And the body was the source of emotion and the body was the source of re-nourishment in an illness that was, you know, centrally around nutrition. And, um, and that presentation just happened to catch the eye of somebody who was the director of psychiatry at um, Children's. And then suddenly I was looped in to work there and develop new protocols and all kinds of things that actually ended up being the reason why um, nutrition was included as part of the treatment team for hospitals treating eating disorders. And so um, I earmark that moment where Jacob um, kind of included dietitians as part of the multidisciplinary team for eating disorders. That was the, in 1985 or so, as the first time dietitians were really um, mandated to be a part of treatment. So that marks a big step forward in terms of our role with clients, groups, and communities in eating disorders. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. So. And you know, the other thing that happened, the reason why um, the JCO got interested is because when we changed over the protocols at Children's to include nutrition counseling, nutrition therapy, as a part of the course of treatment for the folks who are um, at that point inpatient, um, our recidivism rates dropped enormously. Okay, so we, we switched over from just doing supplemental refeeding um, and, you know, basically diet tech kind of work to actually including the counseling component, which at that point for me um, was, you know, relational cultural theory and some cognitive behavioral work and what probably would be called motivational interviewing at this point. That's incredibly, um, that's, that timeline I wasn't aware of. So thank you so much for kind of um, m marking marking that for us. Um, 
you know, so quite a number of years on, um, what have you have what have you observed as to some of the advancements or perhaps lack thereof in terms of the way dietitians are are involved um, in eating disorder um, treatment and, and also broader kind of care of of people who who struggle with body image oh boy um, so well one of the things I think happened. Um, fairly early on, maybe in the late 80s or so, which made a difference. So in the, actually probably more like in the early 90s. So through the 80s, when I was involved, um, there were actually quite a few dietitians who were very involved in nutrition therapy. Um, we had a cohort of maybe 30 to 40 dietitians who had proposed to the academy um, that we develop a special practice group. We called ourselves INSTEAD, um, which was nutritionists specializing in the treatment of eating disorders. And um, I think we were developing some wonderful programs. I had gone back to school to look at movement therapy. And so we were bringing more yoga in. We were really trying to incorporate families as part of the treatment process. And so we had family dinners twice a week, we had family therapy, we had parents groups, and we we're considering parents to be part of the team, the treatment team. We were working, at that point, we were working with Maudsley Hospital in London quite a bit and really looking at all of the advances in family therapy, which were tremendous. Um, then I think what happened was in the early 90s, um, our, our managed care took over and the length of stays in the hospital in our, our residential treatment program dropped from something like six to eight months down to 30 to 60 days. And we all started to like, you know, try to figure out what could we do <laughs> in 30 to 60 days. And that's when I think everything got really constricted and compressed into these just, you know, simplified, overly simplified kind of um, acute care types of, you know, manualized treatment for somebody. Mm, I was going to say manualized treatment models. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, and so when that happened, I felt like there was this regression, of, you know, kind of across the boards for dietitians because they were, we no longer had the time to develop the relationship that you'd actually need to create trust so that you know your your client your adolescent would make the changes that they needed to make in order to to move towards connection and recovery um and yeah and so i i think that they at that point dietitians were really starting to just feel like the best i can do is contain the symptoms mm. i can do is offer some kind of you know externalized structure some kind of help around the regulation of their eating. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of the manualized treatment models, they've stuck around, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. And some, you know, some of it, some of that manualized treatment though, I think can be incredibly helpful. Yes. You know, some of the CBT stuff that came out was amazing. Um, really wonderful, two wonderful colleagues of mine, Mona Villapiano and Lara Goodwill, Goodman, um, wrote a manual on CBT that I think was great. Um, Masha Lenahan's DBT manual is fantastic. I mean, it's such an inclusion of mindfulness and, you know, really being able to move into that dialectic of holding the emotion and tolerating it. Um, yeah, plus the CBT, you know, stuff, yeah. It's been quite an evolution, hasn't it, over time? I feel like maybe from... You know, in the early 2000s, when I started to be much more involved in in eating disorder, in the eating disorder world, I guess you would say, and, you know, moving forward now to 2020, it's um, it's kind of quite remarkable how, how much things have changed and shifted and yet how much is frustratingly still very similar to, you know, some of the same conversations of what you used to have. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I feel as though for you, right, you are embodying the voice of an empowered dietitian. And I think that that, 
means an enormous amount for people like me who've been around and have become very frustrated with the, you know, sluggishness of, um, of the folks who are sort of really just overly uh, invested, imbued, or unconscious about the diet culture and how harmful it is. Um, yeah. Mm. So I know one of your one, okay, uh, one more thing. I I think <laughs> I know that um, this is somewhat you know timely for right now, but. I, I can't help but feel as though everything that's happening in the United States with the, um, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, that that's another example of how bias can stay for such a long period of time, right? That these just horrible um, held beliefs, like beliefs that just endure, right? Um, that it doesn't change that quickly. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what we're being frustrated with in the eating disorder field as well. Absolutely. And just on that note, you know, just wanted to, to pause to send our love and compassion to all of our colleagues, particularly our colleagues of color at the moment, as we're recording this, you know, people are deep in grief and deep in anger. And all of everything is valid, real. Um, You know, and it's also a really good example of how, you know, even though I live with white privilege and I am definitely not, you know, at the center of of this, um, we all grieve. Yes. Right? It affects all of us. So, you know, the racism, the weightism, it affects all of us, regardless of our privilege, mm-hmm. our size, our color. Yes, yes. So social justice and its particular intersection with how we have experienced our bodies, I know is a particular interest, passion. It's not an interest, it's a passion area of yours. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that because we can't really, we, we cannot talk about body liberation without talking about body justice and about the particularly around the um, structural barriers which come up for people in being able to live in and alongside their bodies with a sense of peace and freedom and ease. And, you know, particularly in the eating disorders sector, people are both deeply caring, very deeply caring, and really, really are strongly invested in recovery. And yet so many of these same biases, particularly around weight, exist. So this is a a kind of a big topic, but I'm wondering if it feels okay to, to maybe dive on in there. Yeah. Yeah, you have, we have a lot of big topics here. Uh (laughs) Um, And maybe this is a nice um, kind of segue into this notion of body image versus embodiment, right? So, um, you know, I know there's a lot of, there's probably different ways in which people think about this and how you may think about it is maybe different from how I think about it. Um, but I think about embodiment as really our lived experience, right? About kind of living from the inside out, really being kind of in that place where we experience the world and our body. And it's, it's sensory and it's intuitive, but it's more, it's kind of that, you know, that knowing that relationship to ourselves and our relationship um, to others in our in- intuition, right? All of those things that I think body image doesn't actually capture, right? And um, when I think about embodiment, I feel like it is also the way in which we experience our authentic self. And I think there are tremendous challenges to being in that space. And, and some of the barriers, right? So one of the barriers, of course, is our race and our gender and um, 
our preferred gender, our sexuality, and all of the ways in which it might be difficult for us to show up in our authentic space, in our authentic self. And I think there are a couple of periods of time where we go through tremendous identity questions, you know, in adolescence and then again in midlife, where we have to ask those, those ourselves, you know, who are we? How are we going to matter? What's our purpose? And, um, and I think we're trying to connect with our authenticity and what, you know, lights us up, what's important to us. And at those points in time, we're also hit with a lot of societal um, ideas about who we should be. And some of those are extraordinarily oppressive. And so for many adolescents, I think there's a disconnection. In order to feel like they fit in, they have to disconnect from what they might be feeling. Or maybe they don't honor or don't really... Um, want to be fully curious about who they are because it's it feels imperative for them to make those connections in relationships around them. And I think, you know, something similarly happens for women as they get into middle age, right? That they start to question their, their purpose. They start to question um, how they can really show up authentically because there's a lot of cultural oppression at that time too, right? Aging is kind of, a, um, I think within our culture anyways, we look at, at aging as something that is sort of devaluing and kind of um, being less than, right? And so, you know, everybody wants to be noticed. We wanna be seen. We wanna be valued for what we contribute and who we are. And I think women in, in middle age, it's not surprising that they make up what, about 25 to 30% of admissions into all eating disorder treatment facilities. And some of them are coming in, um, you know, after years and years of struggle with an eating disorder, some are having a, a resurgence, right, of their eating disorder. And then a very small percentage are having an eating disorder for the first time. So it, it's something that's transcending, right, decades. For, for most women. And I think it has to do um, more it, with this sense of dissatisfaction that may be related more to how the, comfortable they feel showing up in their authentic self. Mm -hmm. Because as women age, they have more appreciation for what the body does. So in body image, um, you know, there's not a lot of research on body image in older women. Most of it is done on younger adolescents. But for most of, of, of what has been studied is this sense that older women feel you know, an appreciation for their body. They appreciate what it can do. It, they appreciate its function, but they have terrible dissatisfaction with their mm. appearance, right? And so I think embodiment is a way that dietitians really help people to recover. But we can't change the culture that might be imp impacting their perception of self, right? And their body image so to speak. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, well, th this is the best thing about having a conversation is that it's not, um, it's not a five minute radio interview. You know, we get to pause and change tack and add a little yeah. bit more. And that's why I love doing this is it, is it's this, this, these are the things Lisa Pearl that you and I would be talking about over dinner anyway. It just so happens that we've recorded it and we're sharing it. <laughs> So I learned something recently on a podcast um, that women my age are, or in my generation are living 20 years longer than their grandparents. And that 20 years longer is in this middle area, right? Um, whatever that is, <laughs> 45 to 65 or whatever, 50 to 70, I don't know. Anyway, we're living longer in these middle years. And yet... Um, a lot of women lose their jobs before retirement. It's also true that I think about half of all purchases in terms of consumer power are done by women over the age of 50, right? So you have this 
enormous cohort of women who really need to invent who they are, right? Make a definition of who they are and we can make a difference. And so I think you, and I have talked about this before, I've decided that my difference in this period of time is not only to educate and mentor young dietitians, but just to support dietitians who are younger than me. Because, you know, you have these platforms like podcasts and things like that, that are amazing in terms of the outreach and, and the capacity to network with other people. And I think they do make a difference, you know, in a really, really good way. And I know there's a lot of negative stuff out there too, but that doesn't mean you don't keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, one thing that you and I share in common is um, you and Marcy teach at Simmons University um, and I do some teaching here. And, you know, we, I know that you, Marcy, and I, and Julie Dillon, for example, talk a lot about about supporting our uh, our dietetic students and and emerging uh, specialists coming through who are who are so passionate about supporting people in this sense of um, embodiment and reconnection, and that it take and it can take quite a number of years to do both the learning and the unlearning, and mm-hmm. the un- unpacking and the repacking, and right. Right. yeah, <laughs> all this. That's what your question was. Yeah. So now that I'm remembering, I kind of go off on tangents. It's kind of late. No, that's great. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so what what I think is that we all still live in this culture that is very oppressive and, you know, really plays with our, you know, um, feelings of security, feelings of attractiveness and desirability, um, you know, I, I, we can't extricate ourselves from the culture at hand. And so just like our clients, we have our own work to do to build awareness of how this is impacting us, really be able to sense that awareness, right? We have, you know, I think that anyone who's in the field really needs to develop the capacity for mindfulness, for sensing, for being able to be attuned to their own um, physical and emotional experience, right? And, to also have this enough space in their awareness to look at what is, you know, what's impacting them, you know, and it, sure, it, you know, it's things that we have to discover early on, but then we have to stay with it, right, over time. And that's the, the beauty of living and learning, you know, in this field. And it, it changes and, and we continue to learn. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a um, a privilege that uh, you and I amongst many many others hold in terms of the safety to be able to do that um, yeah. the safety of um, you know the privilege of even time energy education um, as well as you know safety more broadly in terms of how we move around in the world and how we are received by others and healthcare, etc etc it's so true mm. oh my lord and, and it just makes you admire the people who don't have that privilege even more, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, that's why, you know, when I, when I was such a young dietitian and I was introduced to NAFA and the people there, how could you not admire them, you know, for all the work that they were doing and all of the, um, you know, the, the effort they were, everything that they had to transcend to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and particularly for dietitians, um, a lot of the a lot of the quest- amazing questions that dietitians have, which comes from a place of deeply caring intention. Um, you know, we're also being trained in a system which is um, being dominated by a Eurocentric discourse, where you know, quote unquote, healthy eating is seen as the, the I don't know the pinnacle of goodness and worth and value and yet is you know very narrow in its uh in its uh, reach of people of um that have not only different cultural backgrounds but then also food preferences and different 
the ways in which they seek to have a relationship with food and eating and, and their body. And so, you know, dietetics as a, as a whole is, um, you know, for dietitians that are, that are coming through that may not necessarily have uh, experienced a lot of safety in their own bodies and their and and safety in having a relationship with food that is theirs as opposed to has been handed to them through dominant dominant narratives and dominant quote unquote healthy eating discourse that um you know to see greater diversity amongst dietitians is just what we desperately need <laughs> i can see your face palming um that for our for, for our course content to be to be safe is is pretty critical to be able to see these greater diversity amongst our profession. Oh man. Yeah. How do we make that happen? How can we encourage that? Well, is that a rhetorical question or a question? <laughs> really asking. I mean, I, I think sure we can donate and we can encourage and we can support and, but I, what else? Like, have you other ideas about how to make that happen? I mean, I think one thing is, is haze and, and sort of weight inclusivity. Like, that's one place to start, right? The more we can educate dietitians and the more comfortable people of different sizes can feel, you know, entering the field, that's, that would be great. But even in other ways, too, I mean, I, I, we're horribly white, aren't we? As oh, yeah. As a, <laughs> and, and female? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And small and smaller bodied and straight and cisgender and 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 I think I, I mean in in my teaching years I am seeing it change uh, which I, is, is curious and I would I'd like to think it's because there is um, more conversation around um, breaking down implicit bias and the course the course itself and the teaching itself um, being an environment where diversity is being supported rather than squashed. However, I, I, I was taught, I, I, two dietetic directors here in Melbourne, actually very good friends of mine, and they both feel an enormous amount of frustration towards, you know, the, the content that they have to teach mm -hmm. and how that can actually be very, very harmful and very unsafe for people who are not of the um, of the um, dominant cultural and gender uh, yeah. groups, which yeah. you know the content is aimed at. Mm. So yeah, I think and, that's where it starts. Yeah, and I think it's hugely problematic. I, I uh, one of my colleagues just did this study where she was looking at um, nutrition counselling for folks who had diabetes in a predominantly two places. One was predominantly African-American and the other one was in Appalachia. And um, the dietitians who were doing the counseling in the, the education were, you know, as you would expect, you know, white, small bodied, they had such a limited understanding of their own bias and very little sensitivity to the culture that they were working with. And so they interviewed, you know, this study was to interview the folks who had gone through the counseling with the dietitian. Um, and primarily the feedback was that they didn't get it, right? They didn't know what it was like to live within their culture. They didn't have any understanding of what food meant to them. And it just kind of fell on deaf ears, what they were trying to say. And so I think you're right. I think we need to bring this forward in our education for um, nutrition students. And I think we probably need to, you know, kind of really up our engagement with different, you know, um, minority groups or, um, you know, really trying to encourage a better understanding in the field with them so that they might feel more included in the process. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, that, that is such a good point. So it's not necessarily that we're going to be um, making decisions about how people feel safe. We're actually going to be completely pausing on that and asking and consulting and paying yeah. people to tell us um, right. what, 
might, and I really mean might, because there is never safety is such a, um, I, I kind of, I want to just say I use that word loosely because I just want to mention that maybe there is no such safe space, that there is always going to be, uh, you know, um, for everybody, but inequitably everybody, that um, it makes me sad to even think about it. No, I, I hadn't thought about it like that before. You're right. You know, and yeah, well, it's it's probably another one of those continuums, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, the continuum is important. It's mm -hmm. really important. And I use this term a lot. And that is that how are we making a contribution to move the needle? Mm. You know, that if we start from a place of courage and we are starting from a place of um, justice and inclusivity mm -hmm. that we're being thoughtful about how we use our voice. Um, you know, I, uh, a, 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 an Aboriginal colleague of mine said to me, <laughs> She said, "The noise." She said, "Her mother told her it's because we were talking about different volumes in dietetic spaces, and um, we were talking about how you know effectiveness really comes in lots of different volumes, and that some pe people kind of have higher volume and have the short game, and um, other people are you know wanting to kind of play the long game, and it's a bit more strategic." Anyway, and she says, "She said." My mother said, the noisy lamb gets the milk. And I thought, yep. <laughs> I just thought, well, isn't that the wisdom? Yeah. So. Another, another quote, which was uh, violence, uh, riots and protests are the voice of the unheard. Right. So that's from Martin Luther King. And I, I think that volume, um, you know, it, it goes up, right? When people get to the point of frustration and you mm -hmm. can really understand why, you know, if we kind of circle back to what we were talking about before, why, you know, minority groups might not be interested in dietetics. Totally. You know, if they haven't felt like they've had a voice and haven't felt heard. And so your idea of um, having people go, go and interview and create an understanding and figure out how to um, have this be a more inclusive process and an educational process for dietitians is a good one. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I wanted to point people towards the incredible organization Diversify Dietetics. Yeah, uh, yeah. I actually um, don't know the, the women personally who started the um, this incredible organization, but it is, um, to the best of my understanding, it's um, these incredible um, black and indigenous people of color who have um, started a nonprofit. Uh, so PS, accepting donations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I just met her at, a, um, at the convention a couple of years ago. She was amazing. Yeah. They're firecrackers. That's for sure. I really respect yeah. that. Donate, donate, absolutely. Yeah, and that um, what they've done really beautifully is really um, aimed to elevate and amplify the voices of Black and Indigenous dietitians of colour. And I think it's just absolutely brilliant because it is one of many intersecting identities which can find their voices not being heard. So, um, yeah, I think it's I'm glad you brought that up. It's really brilliant. Yeah. No. Hmm. These are big topics. I know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little daunting, um, you know, in some ways to be thinking about this in light of everything that's happening in the U.S. right now. Um, because it can feel so overwhelming and so frustrating. And I, I know that many dietitians who work in this field, who are listening to this podcast, I know they feel, you know, the grief, right? Because they're doing the work. 
you know, in a different facet, but the work is being done. And I, I do think you move the needle even one degree and it makes a difference. Yes. So, Lisa, where would you like to see our profession heading in the future? What would you, if you were to design some classes that every single dietetic student would be taking, um, what would that look like? What's your vision for the, for the future of our profession? <laughs> so... Um, this has been a roller coaster of an interview, Fiona. I know. <laughs> My emotions are all over the place from tremendous mm -hmm. grief to like excitement about the field. So, um, you know, Masi and I are working hard at, at um, this program at Simmons. And I was just speaking to someone who's, um, you know, organizing all kinds of things there. And the, the goal, the original vision that I had for that program was to create an interdisciplinary program with the social work grad students and the dietetic grad students. And then, um, you know, loop in the, the nursing students at, uh, for certain pieces as well. And so what I would like to see, I'd like to see more of this um, understanding in this interdisciplinary way around the treatment of eating disorders so that we can truly respect the work that we do and that we have um, more of a blending, right? So that, you know, you have the folks who have so much of that um, beautiful psychotherapeutic understanding around um, the psychology and the emotional kind of needs and expression and how to help that, um, you know, kind of come to greater health. And then you have dietitians who have all of the wonderful science around the body and the physiology and the, the understanding of behaviors and how to um, kind of begin to integrate an understanding of the emotion and kind of the body and sort of blending those together so that we really can create um, this vision of the embodied authentic self for our clients. So that is the, the goal. And one of the classes that I'd love to see happen is, is more of a, um, a kind of a lab where dietitians get to go in and have, you know, um, what are they called? They're like actor patient mm. clients. So I can't, there's a name for them. Um, where they come in and they actually get to practice their counseling skills. And then they get to, you know, watch one of the social workers or one of the psychotherapy students and that they get to interact with that and really learn how to work together and, and create a much more holistic treatment process for our clients. Um, I, I, I'd like to see that happen in the field for, for eating disorders. That I think is, is Im imperative for our clients because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out how to connect and how to integrate, right? And so if we can do, we can role model that on the treatment team, we are, we're really giving them the path towards recovery. Whereas, you know, unfortunately what I see is just this, you know, very disconnected treatment process happening between all of the disciplines in their little silos and people aren't really communicating. They're not collaborating. They're all territorial and things like that. I mean, that doesn't happen always, but you know, on, on difficult teams, that's what's happening, right? And people haven't really learned how to create that, those relationships with one another so that the team process can feel um, inspired, you know, so that people can have different perspectives and different opinions and they have the safety and the, and the trust of one another and the respect of one another to, to talk about that. I love that idea of being able to have the experience to um, observe other practitioners and the work that they are doing with your, uh, with the same person and what that looks like in different, um, from different modalities. I actually think that's, that's a, that's a brilliant idea because how many times do we hear people say, oh, um, or make assumptions about what the dietitian does and doesn't do. It's like, Oh, yeah, no, I close the door and um, I do a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think also just to recognize how people are relational and they're emotional and they're cognitive and they're, 
you know, they're physical and they have a kinesthetic experience with the world. And you can't just like lob off pieces of those when you walk into a dietitian's office or into a psychotherapist's office, right? So Mm -mm. how we work together around that is important. Definitely. I think the other piece, if I could add to your vision, (laughs) is that we all learn how to work respectfully alongside our clients when they don't have the same experience as we do, when they have, um, when, when they show up differently in the world, when they have, um, because of their lived experience, they, yeah, that it's, it's part of their, their lived experience is part of their eating disorder experience and part of their embodied experience and how we can be so respectful and so thoughtful and very deliberate in doing the necessary work um, to be effective rather than um, potentially harmful. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there are so many times when, you know, people can't do some of the things that we want them to do. You Mm. know, we'd love, see them be intuitive eaters we'd love to see them have interoceptive awareness we you know we'd love to have them be able to have all kinds of relational connections but not everyone can right you know whether it's medication induced whether it's you know physiological whatever that is um, it's not always possible and we have to have respect for that and the capacity to work with that as well Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well, well, we have, we have, yes, been on quite the ride. <laughs> uh, it's such a joy to see you. I know this is a podcast, but I can see you. Yes. Yeah. And thank you. It, it's, it's been such a tough experience being here. And um, so I appreciate the conversation and the lighthearted moments as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, the lighthearted moments are important not to not to erase the tough moments, but so that we can be with and remember that there's a both and rather than an either or, and that um, and that gosh, it's such a all this is so tough for so many people in different ways. Yeah, well, in connecting with you, really, it. You know, my spirit was so heavy when we started this conversation. And it's amazing how just, you know, feeling the relationship with you and feeling some hopefulness, um, you know, within our profession, it makes a difference, right? It makes a difference to have some space to do our own healing. Mm. Yes. Mm. And with that, what a wish that would be for every healthcare student and provider may we have the space for our own healing you know and actually fiona that's beautiful because if that's what we can carve out for our students that will be good that will be enough that would make for a a meaningful future exactly Mm. lisa thank you so so much this conversation has been incredible in so many ways i knew it would be but you know it's, a joy. <laughs> it's always a joy so if people <laughs> if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you where where could people find a little bit more information about your group practice um, um hmm. so um my group practice is the counseling and nutrition center 360 and we're in lexington and concord massachusetts so our website is cnc360.com. And if you go there, you can find me. Yep. She's not too hard to find. Some other amazing people, by the way. Incredible. Your staff team are so great. You have a knack at finding amazing colleagues. The best colleagues ever. I just, I love them to pieces. They are so gifted. They are all incredible healers. And, um, I feel extraordinarily fortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a team. That's not, every day, not to be found everywhere. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we do a lot of supervision. P.S. <laughs> <laughs> the importance of supervision. You know, I mean, anybody who listens to this podcast will know that I will talk about supervision forever. 
and it being <laughs> well looping back to what I literally said two minutes ago and that is it provides a space where we can do our own healing it's a yeah, you know. it, oh it's if it feels therapeutic you're on the you're on the right track yeah well I think I told you this when we were first talking about supervision that I had you know so I, I had so much supervision when I was a young dietitian and I thought it was just the bomb. I couldn't believe it. It was great. I had supervision with the director of psychiatry and the director of psychology and social work, and like all these people. And I was just like a sponge. I was just like learning and learning and learning. And um, I remember the first time I was talking to people about who other dietitians about how important it was for them to get supervision in the field. And I didn't even think that they weren't conceptualizing supervision the way I was. I think they were thinking about it as like a, you know, like some kind Chitty of chat. supervisor telling you what to do. Oh, yeah. And, um, and they just looked at me like I was bat crazy. And uh, now I understand that maybe they weren't thinking about supervision the way that I do, which is supportive and incredibly enlightening and drives, you know, me to learn and develop perspective yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so much so reflective space man all right fiona hey good night my friend yeah you get to you get to say you get to um <laughs> snuggle down <laughs> all right then i'll talk to you soon lisa thank you again so so much thank you bye-bye well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.